everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. And I started with that Chopin piece because I'm going to read you a quote from one of the books mentioned in this episode, Douglas Hofstadter's Gödel Escherbach. He talks about a biographer of Chopin writing on the subject of that piece, Chopin's Etude Opus 25, number 11 in A minor, or The Winter Wind for some of you pianists out there, saying that for Hofstetter and for the biographer, it is one of the most sublime pieces of music ever written. Small-souled men, phew, does that phrase ever run against the grain of American democracy, writes Hofstetter. And yet I would suggest that it is only because we all tacitly do believe in something like Hunnicker's shocking distinction that most of us are willing to eat animals of one sort or another, to smash flies, swat mosquitoes, fight bacteria with antibiotics, and so forth. We generally concur that men, such as a cow, a turkey, a frog, and a fish, all possess some spark of consciousness, some kind of primitive soul, but by God, it's a good deal smaller than ours is. And that by no more and no less is why we, humans, feel that we have the perfect right to extinguish the dim lights in the heads of these fractionally sold beasts and to gobble down their once warm and wiggling but now chilled and stilled protoplasm with limitless gusto and not feel a trace of guilt while doing so, end quote. So that's pretty powerful. I remember uh, when I went on one of my first dates with my then husband, he asked me, what is your cosmology? And I was like, well, what is my cosmology? Hmm. You know, what do I believe? How do I believe the world is organized? And it was some pastiche of uh, religiosity, dogma, direct experience, uh, fantasy, um, but I'd never really teased it out before. And I was unable until that time to really see how these beliefs about how the world was organized at its most fundamental level were driving my behaviors and my interactions with other people. So today I invite you, if you're willing, to drop in and stick around for this conversation to take a little bit more of an esoteric journey with me into the realm of worldviews and cosmologies. How do you think the world is organized at its most fundamental level? How does that view feed into your perception of how we are related to our own bodies, to ourselves, to other people, to other beings, to the rest of the natural world, to the cosmos as a whole, to the mycelial networks? If you grew up thinking like I did that the only real thing was the material world of the five senses until you had some kind of extraordinary other experience, you might have one view, but by now we all know that our senses at the scale of human embodiment are inadequate unless they're aided by instrumentation. You pull out a deep space telescope and a nano microscope, for example, and you see so much more. And it's the same with sound and vibration. There's more going on than we ever could imagine. So we, we know that the Western cosmovision isn't the final say. And in fact, if you look at like the way that indigenous people see the world, it's very, very different. It doesn't, doesn't even have the same concept of time and space. So I think this is an important topic because our cosmology is deeply tied to the trenchant challenges for human beings on earth at this time, the violence we do to one another, our ecological problems, and our attitude toward the natural world. In fact, towards our very own bodies. And you know, I want more freedom and more joy for all y'all in all of these dimensions. So who better to talk about this than a person who's working at the intersection of environmental law and being a professor of consciousness? 
and that is today's guest, Mr. Tam Hunt. Hi, this is Tam Hunt. He's my friend from the Big Island, but that's not why he's on the podcast. He's on the podcast because he represents this amazing intersection of many of the things we've been talking about. Who are we? How are we related? What is consciousness? What is sentience? What is the planet and our relationship to ecologies that we're part of? Glad to be here. So tell me about this evolution in you. Did you just grow up knowing you wanted to be a student of consciousness? Or when did you first know you were headed in that direction? Didn't um, know it, you know, out of the womb, exactly. More like out of high school. I was actually in college right out of high school in Seattle at UW for one quarter. I had to leave. That's a different story. But I had to leave after one quarter. So I had a very short career at UW. And um, I was working at Starbucks in Seattle for the whole winter and pretty bummed at my situation. Didn't really have friends there. Seattle in wintertime is, as you might have heard, a bit depressing. I ended up browsing uh, the philosophy section at the UW bookstore one day, I think shortly after I had left college there, and found a few books that really intrigued me. One by uh, Douglas Hofstadter and Daniel Dennett called The Mind's Eye. Another one by Hofstadter called Gödel Escher Bach, uh, which is quite famous one, Appeal to Surprise, and a couple others that I got at the same time. And these were, you know, super intriguing. Gödel Escher Bach is actually not an easy read, but I recommend it highly. It's got some really cool kind of dialogues in between the hard chapters, uh, written in kind of a Grecian dialogue kind of way that made the ideas accessible and fun. And then the mind's eye is all about kind of essays on consciousness, uh, mostly from a materialist perspective. Kind of got me thinking a bit um, at 18, and I'd always been pretty philosophical and, you know, loved science and philosophy in high school and read a lot of sci-fi. And then I ended up joining the Army, leaving the Army, going back to college, studied biology, went to law school, got a job as a lawyer. But... During this whole time, well into my 30s, I was pretty consistently reading about consciousness and philosophy as, you know, a pretty serious kind of hobby, effectively. Around 15 years ago in Santa Barbara, I met a friend through a friend who is a professor at UC Santa Barbara, a professor of psychology, uh, Jonathan Schooler. And he and I are still great friends. And... After meeting at a bar and talking about philosophy at a bar, he was like, hey, we should get lunch and talk more about this. And we began you know, chatting about these issues. And he eventually invited me to be, be part of his lab as a scholar, um, basically visiting a scholar. And um, I think at the time, I was also teaching at the Brand School at UC Santa Barbara in climate change law and policy. So I had a bit of an academic background already, but nothing at that time published in consciousness. And so he kind of took a bit of a leap of faith on me. And then having that position gave me um, some street cred. So I began writing about consciousness and philosophy. So I published my first big paper on these issues back in 2011. And it really kind of went from there and, you know, continued what was a pretty serious hobby. And now I've turned it into a pretty serious kind of second career. I'm still a lawyer by day. <laughs> Just the intersection of consciousness and the environment is where, as a place we could really go off on. I mean, I remember reading Gertel Escherbach way back when, and it was also sort of an early 
pointer to neuroscience and discoveries in neuroscience, this idea that, you know, pattern recognition across physics, music, art, that uh, that patterns were really governing a lot of the way that we thought and interacted with the world. And so I feel like that that distinction in the public's mind between brain and consciousness is still not clear. Mm-hmm. He was getting at that a long time ago. So So let's go back to, so you're by day a lawyer, doing really serious environmental law, making sure that people have whatever, clean power, all that stuff, teaching at law school, and then you're doing the consciousness piece. And how is that How is that interfacing for you? How do you see them related, or do you? No, I do, for sure. Yeah, they're very closely related. For me, the underlying philosophy piece and thinking about the nature of consciousness and, in particular, human consciousness in the broader framework of the universe we live in is entirely relevant to environmentalism and why we should care. And so, you know, without going through the whole gory story of how I came to where I am today, uh, I'll come out quite proudly as a, as a card-carrying panpsychist. And so I went from being pretty hardcore militant atheist and materialist to through various kind of um, evolutionary steps um, to, you know, 15 years ago, realizing that this school of thought called, called panpsychism um, seemed to me the most likely candidate for a sensible and life-affirming and world-affirming philosophy. You know, the very brief version of what this means is that in panpsychism, all matter is associated with some degree of mind and vice versa. All mind has some degree of matter. There are two sides of the same coin. Where there's mind, there's matter. Where there's matter, there's mind. And this gives me kind of this feeling of um, comfort in terms of my place in the universe, knowing that I'm not some, you know, strange add-on to the universe and its laws and its origins. Instead, we evolved very organically from mind stuff that is all around us. You know, everything has some degree of mind. We are a more complex and more interesting piece of mind stuff that is very much connected to and evolved out of the world around us. And that, to me, forms a basis of a very coherent and satisfying ecological worldview. Yeah, I mean, basically, if I'm understanding you correctly, that in this view, that even things that are typically considered inanimate, like particles or atoms or rocks or something like that, are now considered as if they have some level of consciousness, experiential quality in them, and that it's that, that they're basically alive in some way, animated by the same stuff. Yeah, that's accurate. There's a, an important kind of um, second step in the, in the thinking is that it's not that every rock has its own kind of rocky consciousness. It's more that all the components of anything are always going to have some degree of consciousness. So like I said, you know, the electron and the atoms will have some degree of very, very, very minute humming of consciousness Mm. but the rock itself uh, probably doesn't have really anything it's like to be a rock what makes life remarkable on this planet in its form we know today is that life seems to have leveraged faster information flows and resonances between different parts of the body of any life form we're looking at that allow for the coherent shared resonance throughout that body and in particular in brains and mammals, in a way that gives you a coherent, complex consciousness. And so the rock and 
um, a human that weighs the same as the rock are quite different in terms of the composition. And that difference is the information flows and energy flows throughout that human body versus the rock. And that's why rock uh, weighs the same, uh, but doesn't have anything like the behavioral repertoire or emotional repertoire that a human has. I'm, try I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around this idea that a complex system has a lot more varying components that are all in communication with each other and exchanging information and that that consciousness in the way we think of it like an entity kind of consciousness arises from the pace and complexity of those interactions. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. And in particular, I'd add that the way that mammalian brains and bodies seem to really leverage um, information flows and energy flows is through shared resonance of their components. And so without getting too much in the weeds, if you look at, you know, human EEG data, you know, from the delta all the way up through high gamma, you actually see interesting patterns of binary hierarchies. And so there's actually a bunch of experiments now that show, for example, when a human subject is asked to do math in their head, you actually see more binary hierarchy spread throughout their brain, uh, showing pretty clearly that these binary hierarchies play a, a functional role. And that's basically the same principle throughout the whole body and brain. It's just a series, a nested hierarchy of shared resonance chains. And basically the whole universe operates in the same way. It just so happens that life on our planet, particularly mammalian life, and mammalian brains and bodies have achieved a very rare form of advanced hierarchical resonance, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it makes sense. It also kind of feels magical, like I want to say like quite enchanted, that you would have these, uh, a field that's humming, all the atoms and electrons and everything's got its own little buzz going on, kind of like the ohm in yoga. And then you would have these collections that are like hot spots of, of awareness that are that are built and, you know, show up as mammals or possibly even possibly even trees or distributed systems like that. So, I mean, I can see how that would lead you to really have a deep respect for the world around you. Yeah, yeah. When I first had this kind of, you know, insight after reading about panpsychism and, you know, meditating on it for a bit, I really did feel this comfort, this kind of, the, the metaphor is that I kind of felt like if I had fallen backwards to the ground, it would have kind of opened up and taken me in and, that actually is the metaphor for death, right? When we die, we simply are taken back into the earth and we become the same humming that we were before we were in human form. So yeah, to me, it does give a, a lot of comfort just knowing that we are part of it and part of this on, onward eternal flow of energy. I was talking, let's to go back to rocks for a minute, okay? So here I am at this breathwork thing that we were just talking about, and you had to bring a gift. And I would say 10 out of 15 people brought rocks of some sort. <laughs> and like, you know, this whole thing, like crystals have properties, they absorb the energy around them. These rocks are meaningful to me, like it's a piece of earth that I belong to. I do feel like we have some sort of either conceptual or spiritual relationship to minerals. Do you think that's just cultural? Or is there something inherent in the human connection to the planet that's behind that? I don't know. I, I would say, and this might annoy some of your listeners, but so be it. I would say it's probably mostly cultural, um, but I really haven't done any deep dive into, you know, crystal theory. I know there's a lot there, so I don't want to really say anything beyond what I've studied so far. Uh, I'm learning more about minerals and crystals at this point, but I haven't really done any kind of deep dive. Stick to, yeah, I like that you're sticking to your 
you're knitting, like you know what you're doing. But it was it was surprising because it feels like okay, on a large in a larger sense, the culture has anthropomorphized a lot of things already. Like I feel I feel like our perceptions, like the the probably the most influential cultural force in the restoration of animism is like Disney. Yeah, super interesting point. Yeah, yeah, no, really. Look at Fantasia, right? Fantasia is all about, you know, conscious brooms, et cetera, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting point, too, if I can riff on that for a second. So um, I've been having a, a dialogue with Charles Eisenstein through his books and also through emails and interviews. I imagine you and most of you know who he is. He's a pretty well-known contemporary philosopher and kind of um, social thinker. And he's been a big fan of animism and trying to kind of revive animism as a legitimate way of looking at the world. And I see panpsychism as a scientifically informed version of animism, because animism, of course, can uh, be a bit too simplistic, I think, in a complex world, even if it does embody um, certain you know, deep truths. And he, he basically agreed with that when I interviewed him. He's like, yeah, I think he thinks animism and panpsychism are kind of pretty equivalent. But in our work, we've tried to um, add a mathematical and scientific overlay to the panpsychist philosophical bones to make it you know more than just philosophy uh, which is important in itself but to be scientific we need to have a, a framework we can actually uh, use to quantify things and test things and and then see you know if we can actually go beyond that and make predictions animism for people who aren't really aware of that as an idea it says that even inanimate objects are part of the community of beings and they have intrinsic value and that we share privileges and responsibilities with them. So there's a piece in the animism, which common to land-based traditions, indigenous traditions all over the world, that, that basically says everything is ensouled, and they seem to have deeper respect um, for what's happening on the planet because of that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I wrote a piece years ago, actually, um, fairly early on this journey through panpsychism. I called it the mirror of the world. And how when you do see um, the world as ensouled or in minded, then you actually do see yourself in the world. And that can be a helpful tool for ecological thinking uh, because you then see the world as not just a, a place to exploit. And without getting too deep into the religious history, you know, the idea of man is, you know, the world is our dominion to exploit as it will um, based on, you know, long-standing Christian views has been very damaging in many ways. And so I think there is a modern push to kind of remind and resoul the world, re-enchant the world through recognizing that not only are we from the world, we are the world, but you know, the rest of the world is actually um, a lot more like us than we realize normally. So how does this stuff show up in your day-to-day -day life? Do you think from your youth and, you know, when you were coming of age and a young, you know, earlier in your life, does it change the way you relate to people and see others? You seem to be a very tolerant and loving person in general. Well, thanks for that. Um, I try to be. Don't always succeed, but I try to be. Yeah, no, it does. Um, I mean, who knows how much of my adult behavior will be what it is without any philosophical, you know, overlay, right? But certainly, I think since I've you know been doing this work not only in philosophy, but also through my, my spiritual work. And, you know, one of the areas I've written a lot about is not just, you know, the scientific study of consciousness, but also trying to 
reconcile science and spirituality. I've written a couple of books about that so far. I have a third on the way. I, I see it as a tool for um, behavior and kind of right livelihood and personal ethics in various ways. And I'll just hit on, you know, one pretty big one. Uh, another big hero of mine for a long time now has been Alan Watts. And he came up through Episcopalian Christianity, found Buddhism fairly early on, you know, definitely partial to Advaita Vedanta and Taoism and Zen, etc. But one of the key things he kind of talks about in his work and in his books and hits it over and over again is that our conception of self in the modern world um, is far too narrow. You know, we envision ourselves as a bag of bones, kind of a meat suit walking through life, and then we die, and that's kind of it, right? So it's pretty depressing in you know many levels, and it doesn't lead to a very useful set of tools for how to relate to each other. See, he suggests, and I think this is a very reasonable and rational way of viewing the situation, that we are, in fact, not just this little human meat suit, but we are, in fact, the everything. We are the all. Because there is, in fact, no real boundary between us and the rest of the universe. And the wave ocean metaphor is very apropos here, certainly not unique to me or to Watts, but you know, if you are a wave on the ocean, you know, show me where the boundary is between you and the ocean. And if you recognize there is no real boundary, and you recognize that the same that you are both wave and ocean, and you recognize that the ocean itself is vastly larger than the wave, well then who are you really? it's much more accurate to say you are the ocean. And so in this case, when you see yourself as the entire universe and the entire universe is in minded or in sold, it becomes pretty hard, at least for me, to think about uh, treating it badly or wanting to exploit it without considering the bigger picture. Yeah, that feels right. That feels right to me. Of course, you're probably preaching to the choir on all of that stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I feel, I feel like entering into any work of love of the planet or a person or an ecosystem, like to really sit on something, like in, in, in the Hindu philosophy, it's sam, samapati, where you really sit and meditate on something, focus on it, absorb it until you become it and feel it. And in doing so, when you know something that well and you feel it as alive, you love it, you love it. So anybody who begins to pay attention falls in love and then everything turns into you know, turns into a living being. I mean, that's yoga. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much beauty around us. You know, it's, it's very easy to get down yourself in the world. So you wrote a book called Eco, Ego, and Eros. And can you talk a little bit about like, I, so we covered a little bit like how the planet is related to the self. And can you talk about that as how it relates to Eros and what that conception is in your mind in this collection of essays? Yeah, so Eco Ego Eros came out back in 2014 and was a collection of essays I wrote uh, for the Santa Barbara Independent, intending to put them into a book. So they have um, a theme or a few themes. The central theme is what I described already as panpsychism, and it's looking at how the panpsychist idea leads to changes in worldview in various fields, including biology and physics and philosophy. It goes to a lot of things because, again, if you, it really is a big shift. You know, a lot of people I think have heard of the term panpsychism, but maybe haven't really kind of thought it through and what it means in their life. 
and it, there's no, you know, correct answer here, quote unquote. Uh, but, you know, for me, it just means that you really do think through the idea of not only other beings all around you. And I don't like, you know, push on my table and worry about harming the electrons. It's not for me that kind of ethical system. Rather, it leads me to believe that, you know, all the more complex creatures around me, you know, from ants on up, mosquitoes and beetles and rats and bats and cats, you know, they have an emotional life. They have an inner life. And that does lead to differences in how you treat them, hopefully. I'm vegan-ish nowadays. I wasn't always vegan or even vegan-ish. And so there's always a, an inner dialogue with myself as to how much I take into account the idea of other creatures' emotional lives and suffering from our use of them for whatever reason, whether it's you know getting honey from bees or leather from cows or food from pigs, etc. But I think it goes to all that, you know. And when you think about it in terms of evolutionary theory, from a more scientific perspective, it leads to quite big differences in terms of how we got here. And it leads to the notion of mind being a, a force in evolution, a problem-solving force, um, which actually does have a feedback loop on our bodies and evolution of those bodies over time. And I talk about that quite a bit in the first 10 essays in the book. And it also goes to things like in physics. You know, we, we've talked for decades now, for 100 years, about the double-slit experiment of physics. And without going into details there, um, I'll just mention that some physicists, including Freeman Dyson, America, an American physicist, was fond of saying that, you know, the notion of chance in quantum physics should be revised to choice, not chance, and that the electrons or the atoms are exerting some kind of choice over how they behave. It's not just a random chance. And so those kind of things, you know, th those are profound differences in how you view the universe and our place in it. And that's what we explore in that book. By we, I mean I. <laughs> I such into the royal we oh, there. Yeah. We. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of you like shape-shifting right? and taking on different yeah. personas to ask these questions. Yeah. Well, that, that's actually, it's another interesting consequence of this worldview is that when you think about the human brain and its complexity and its hemis hemispherical structure and then specialized circuits in each hemisphere, we actually are a we. You know, <laughs> I talk about I but I'm always a we in each moment. And, you know, me speaking right now, you know, I am the dominant moment of consciousness in a brain, mind, body system, which is always changing each moment. And each I, each word I'm speaking right now is a product of a different I. Um, you know, basically a dominant TAM arises from the, the roiling cauldron of activity below the surface. Um, the roiling cauldron of Tam's mental activity. Yes. Exactly. Yes, yes for sure. We. <laughs> <laughs> when you made the move to Hawaii, what, what was behind that move? And did it change it even further? Like when I moved to Hawaii, I got my first experience of living indoor, outdoor all the time and really felt myself shifting as a physical being from being on the bias, on the planet into being within the biosphere, like really part of the rain and part of the wind and being held by nature. And I got a different understanding of how I as a human was being shaped by the rest of the natural world all the time. I wonder if you had anything similar to that happen or 
I mean, maybe being in California, you grew up outside all the time. I grew up a lot of times like inside watching Speed Racer on the television. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I actually, I lived in Hawaii the first time 31 years ago. I came here as an army boy from Germany and I arrived in Oahu, but way back in 1992. That was actually the era where I was reading deeply in the, this, this area, you know, of philosophy and consciousness. And who knows actually how much it influenced my thinking, but certainly, yeah, I did. Uh, I, I really enjoyed and really kind of sank into metaphorically and physically the jungle on Oahu, did a lot of hiking, really enjoyed being in nature. And the beauty of Hawaii, among other parts of it, is that it's really hard to get hurt very badly, short of falling off a cliff or drowning, because there's nothing that can really harm you here in terms of plant or animal life. There's no poison snakes. There's no there's really no poisonous plants. So you can kind of just like sink into the world around you and really kind of feel it and be in it uh, without worrying about, you know, getting anything more than a mosquito bite. So, yeah, I think, you know, being here then and living here now full time for the last seven years. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting question. I, maybe I should develop a school of tropical panpsychism and discuss the the tropical overlay. Hey, I think there's no accident <laughs> that the tropical uh, the tropical religions and the tropical cultures are generally speaking much more relaxed, trusting, mm -hmm. faithful, easy. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, versus the northern ones where you're fighting nature. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, fighting the rest of nature. I keep trying to change mm -hmm. my linguistic framing around how we're related to the rest of the planet. You know, like I don't go out into nature. I I am communing with the rest of nature and trying to see myself as part of that. It's hard though, changing your language. Yeah, yeah, it is. I've been reading a lot on Hopi and Blackfeet linguistics lately mm -hmm. and how the name of a thing is constantly changing depending on what else it's in relationship to at any given time. Like the whole linguistic structure uh, frames things as, as being related, not in subject object consciousness. Pretty mind blowing actually. Yeah, send me anything you have on that. I'm really, really curious to learn more about that. Can I add a comment on that? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm writing a book on um, pre-contact Hopi life, a novel. And um, I've been going to the Southwest for many years now too, like probably 30 years again. And um, bought some property recently in Arizona, partly so I could be in that part of the world and kind of feel into it more. Partly because it's like such a, the opposite of tropical Hawaii. And I love them both. You know, everything can kill you in Arizona and nothing can kill you in Hawaii, to be very simplistic about it. But um, it's such a beautiful part of the world. The Hopi culture and what they used to call the Anasazi, now they call the ancestral Pueblo cultures that the Hopis are descended from, just left such beautiful artifacts and homes and great houses, etc. really inspired me visiting there. And I am writing a novel now about that world. And part of my novel is, in fact, um, containing the tradition of Hopi animal stories. And, you know, their, their point, of one of many in the Hopi tradition, is to, again, recognize that the universe, the world around them, is ensouled and minded, that the coyote and the badger and the eagle, these are all, you know, they're, they're, they're souls too, they're entities, they think, they have agency. And I want to kind of extend that down and create some new stories as part of my novel about, you know, like the flea and it's, you know, trials and tribulations and see how far I can take that, um, that mindset and play with it and make it interesting as part of the story, but also kind of make this a more subtle point 
that the Hopi worldview was not wrong in this way. You know, it was actually very accurate, more accurate than the, today's scientific worldview in terms of the place of mind in the universe. That's beautiful. I've been turned on to Benjamin Worf, who is a, do you know him, W-H-O-R-F? I don't, no. He was a linguist in the turn of the 20th century. He wrote a book called Language, Thought, and Reality. And, um, and he was the original scholar who broke down first all the different uh, Mexican languages, and then came broke down the Hopi language and others. So he's the proto Hopi investigator, and was the first one to really show how linguistic, he's like the father of modern linguistics, um, how the, ling the structure of our language changes the way we see the world, and how actually you can shift someone's worldview by shifting their language structures. And that ties totally into shape shifting. I'm Here's another book I'm reading now, John Kachuba's Shapeshifters, A History. And a crazy, you're like into these same things. How do you, do you see things as fixed and firm, material reality? Are you this thing, Tam, or I'm sorry, the weeness of Tam, <laughs> the complete picture of Tam? The society of Tam. <laughs> or are you something that moves in and out of like Tamness until you die and then atoms and particles and then reconstituted as something else and does that you know this is a, such a beautiful investigation and i feel that that actually gets to this core of our ability to tolerate and be with complexity and mystery and that that piece in the modern world where people are very rigid and very identified with their ego and body what do you call the meatbag self you know that that's it's an invitation to softness and to being part of this long arc multi um, trans-time, trans-chronic process, being a process. Yeah, I like that term, trans-chronic. Yeah, and I see this worldview, the tropical panpsychic school of thought, um, <laughs> as a very participant. I, like, I would like inventor credits on that. <laughs> I'll definitely give you credit. Yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a very participatory and kind of collegial worldview, where it's not like these, these human overlords controlling and having dominion over the world is that every part of reality is participating in every moment in the creation of an ongoing advance into novelty. Mm, yeah, yeah. And this is what Whitehead, one of my intellectual heroes, calls the creative, the creative advance. And it is this kind of never-ending process of novelty creation where we are all literally remaking ourselves in each moment and becoming new and shiny. And yes, we die, yes, we melt back into the world, but that energy is not lost, it's transformed. So yeah, in terms of you know, my, your question about am, are, are, am I a fixed being? Not at all, you know, this, this is what we call process philosophy and it's you know, named that for a reason. All things are processes, there are no things. There is no thing, there is nothing, there's only process. And so again, that's part of the panpsychist worldview where every process goes through this kind of oscillation between potentiality and possibility, and then it collapses into concreteness, but then it very quickly oscillates back into potentiality, concreteness, potentiality, concreteness, now, 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 in perpetuity. I love that. It's nowing all the time. Now, now. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in panpsychism, animism, process philosophy, or any of the topics that Tam's been discussing, uh, you might want to understand a little bit more about how to apply them as a test field in your everyday life. For me, I think we've heard so far that you could apply them as inviting mystery, inviting tolerance, inviting respect for the world around you, 
inviting curiosity as to how the world is self-organizing. You could also look at this, um, a few things that were mentioned were stepping into the infinite co-creative reality of this new moment and seeing that as a model for human interaction, for collaborating, for seeking new solutions, for letting yourself be shaped by the environment. What are some other things that are applications of this worldview that people could take away? Yeah, well, I agree with all that. And I think that's super helpful. Um, I would highlight that it does really lead to this kind of perpetual dialogue with the universe around us and everything in it. Mm. Maybe I'll share a quick story about my first ayahuasca experience, uh, which was actually here in Hawaii, down in Lower Puna. And one of my first experiences, you know, as the medicine kind of took hold of me, was realizing that I hadn't really talked to all the slugs around me. You know, all these slugs and insects are way down there in the jungle floor. And here I am way up here, just ignoring them. They're like, they're there to dialogue with. And then as I went deeper in that journey, um, I literally felt like this galactic entity reaching down from out in the deep space world universe around us. And it seemed to me like a galactic slug. And it was so curious about me way down there. So it's kind of this fractal reality. And we are at a mid-scale of organization in the universe. That's not controversial. And so I think, you know, recognizing that and this ongoing eternal dialogue with everything around us is a very, you know, life-affirming and a kind of fun worldview. And it definitely leads to humility, but also to a, a large sense of self and collegiality and having the ongoing discussion with everything around us as to its needs and, you know, where they fit within things and not just this kind of separate sense of self lording from on high. Mm, beautiful. Hey, we wanted to talk a little bit about this other thing that's coming up, which is we might not be lording it over the slugs, but um, do you think that AI is going to start lording it over us? And how has the emergence of this impacted your sense of what is consciousness? Yeah, yeah, very apropos, timely topic. We wrote a paper last year called Where is My Consciousness Ometer? And um, all about how to test for the presence and complexity of consciousness. And it's a framework for looking at any system, including AI or human or cat or a rat or a bat or a gnat, and assessing, you know, whether it's conscious and, and how much is there. And the point of the paper is not to give you like a numerical reading from a device. It's to give you a set of tools to ask the right questions and then, you know, form a provisional conclusion that then is put back into the community, you know, cauldron and part of the discussion that, you know, then happens in the full community of researchers. And so looking at today's AI, there's definitely a very interesting question about, you know, are these new LLMs, large language models, conscious in any way? And no one knows. That's the first thing to, to state. No one knows. There's no definitive test for consciousness. You know, we as humans accord each other the collegiality of assuming others are conscious based on their behavior, how they look, their origins, etc. We don't have the same kind of cues for AI text outputs other than the words themselves. We don't even know how they work. You know, they're basically what they call artificial neural networks, and they're, it's a black box architecture. But the outputs are incredibly impressive, and certainly the outputs alone 
if we didn't know they came from, you know, an AI, Let, let's say you were asked three years ago, you know, I showed you this beautiful painting that my friend freely created on mid journey by putting in the text in Tropic Mary and it spit back this gorgeous painting of a very complex, you know, ethereal Mary with flowers and various little creatures around her. If I'd shown you that three years ago, you would have said, well, obviously that's a human that created that someone that had agency and deep, rich consciousness. And yet this computer created it in three seconds and we still have a hard time attributing any kind of consciousness to it i think for good reason because we we know it's just a computer but that kind of output what we call the creative correlative consciousness in our paper is a very important set of data for determining you know our own views on whether any particular ai is conscious but um i think beyond the kind of very interesting philosophical question of are we creating new conscious entities and you know if so what does that say about our own consciousness i think there's a very deep and urgent conversation about the safety of these new generation uh this new generation of ais you know gpt 4.0 is incredibly impressive it passed the uh universal bar exam at a rate better than 90 percent of um human exam takers and various other, you know, tests of reasoning ability. So it is extremely intelligent already. And given the exponential explosion in AI intelligence and energy use, I think these are really, really important issues. And a lot of people, I think, are seeing the, the bright, shiny toys that are now available to us and coming down the pike and saying, hey, this is really good for humanity. But I tend to think a bit long term, longer term, I think in trajectories. And I worry very much about where this is going in you know, five 10, 20 years, and I see it as being potentially very, very damaging. So I hope we all, you know, take a pause and really think through what this means for, for our species and the world around us. Do you think it will get to the point where you could ask it questions of how to solve these more difficult, hairy, complex environmental problems and the lack of political will, and, and it will come up with solutions that humans can't seem to figure out on their own? I think it would certainly come up with written solutions and suggestions that we might not have thought of for sure. Yeah. in very many areas because, you know, already we can see GPT 4.5 on the horizon and, you know, the rate of improvement and in intelligence is quite likely a 4.5 or 5.0 would be quite a bit smarter than your, even your smartest human. That is quite intriguing and exciting, but again, where does it go? You know, that's kind of where my mind fixates on, you know, I definitely see some, real benefits um, in many, many areas of human activity. But given the natural, you know, the, the, the metaphor here is Pandora's box. We're opening that box and we literally have, you know, a survey of AI experts saying there's a 10% chance on average that this is going to destroy us, like literally extinct human beings. And so it's kind of like, hey, you come across a box and it says on there, 10% chance of death of all life on earth, 90% chance of some really cool toys. I'm thinking like, well, maybe we should pause before we actually open that box. Well, I hope that you have good allies in that. I think there's some pretty serious scholars, politicians, thinkers who are doing that. And right now, there are too many people enjoying the way it's easing up their life on the daily. So I like that you're a few years down the road with it in your mind's eye. The cauldron. In the conspiracy of Tamness. <laughs> well, we are going to have a lot to talk about on this subject and more coming up in May of the Science and Consciousness event. Very excited about that. Hopefully we're able to do that with 
you know, some good Italian food and that's right, yeah, and beach time as well. And Termina, yeah, for sure. And I'll be I'll be talking about these issues actually in my plenary um, at the conference, and so I'm going to add in the some discussion of the AI piece um, alongside my discussion about the nature of electromagnetic fields and consciousness. Beautiful. I've also got a book coming out soon called Sexy Trees of Hawaii. So stay tuned for that. Sure to be a bestseller. It's a photo book. And then also the, a novel about Hawaii coming out probably next year. And then other than that, who knows? Many, many things. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Great to talk to you. Alan Watts, the full quote. You are a function of what the whole universe is doing in the same way that a wave is a function of what the whole ocean is doing. We do not come into this world, we come out of it, as leaves from a tree. As the ocean waves, the universe peoples. Every individual is an expression of the whole realm of nature, a unique action of the total universe. And just for funsies, why don't we close with this Alan Watts quote. The meaning of life is just to be alive. It is so plain and so obvious and so simple, and yet everybody rushes around in a great panic as if it were necessary to achieve something beyond themselves. So today I wish you joy in just being yourself, in just being alive. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone. Just pause and text the link. And as always, I really appreciate ratings and reviews and shares because we do a lot to highlight and support the guests and get their message out. And it's always nice for them to have a larger audience. And that's where you come in. Thanks so much for breaking the Rose Woman into the top 5% of pods globally. Super appreciate everybody's support and we'll continue to offer a wide variety of programs on finding more freedom and more liberation in these perfect bodies of ours. Mm-hmm.